0: She's a real woman, with a real life. She's someone you can relate to. Don Newton.
1: Don Newton Podcast. I am your host, Don Newton. For the last nine years, Sam Canonis has been studying the changing face of drug use, sales, and addiction in the United States. In his new book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth, he tracks the explosion of synthetic drugs that has hit the streets of America, increasing the danger of drug use and making addictive chemical substances far cheaper and more plentiful than ever before. Sam Canonis joins me today. He is a New York Times bestselling author, investigative journalist, and NBC Winner. Again, he joins me to discuss his groundbreaking book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Sam Quinones, it's great to speak with you. We're talking about your latest book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you.
0: Really nice to be with you, Don. Thanks so much for taking the time.
1: As a journalist, storyteller, former Los Angeles Times reporter, you've been doing this work this isn't your first book on fentanyl and meth. What got this started for you?
0: You know, I, I was, I believed it was just simply a, a story that needed to be told. I don't have any personal connection to it. I had come, I lived for 10 years in Mexico. I come back from Mexico in 2004, worked for the LA Times. And a few years after that, I began to realize that we we're seeing an enormous increase in in heroin seizures at the border, meaning more and more people using heroin in the United States. I could not explain that. Long story short, eventually began to focus on heroin trafficking, and I realized that in, in particular one town that was very big in, in, uh, where, the, where the guys had a, a system of selling heroin, very much like pizza delivered with mm-hmm. a, a, you know, a radio kind of a, a dispatch system or an operator dispatch system. They were very big in Portland. Uh, for quite a long time, added significantly to the overdose death rate in Portland through the 90s and into the two, 2000s, and that led me to then understand that the reason there was an increase in in, in all this was because of the opioid ep- epidemic and uh, and the, the 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 spread of of uh, the wanton prescribing of prescription pain pills. That then led in turn. Term- to you know, stories of that we're seeing more recently of the Mexican traffic trafficking world getting into synthetic drugs, primarily fentanyl and methamphetamine, and using that opioid addicted consumer population across the country as kind of a, a, a trampoline into that new market.
1: Well, and that's that's what's something that's really interesting too. Is when you talk about opioids and addiction, we don't necessarily think about it as a family member who's living in their home functioning day to day we think it's somebody that might be struggling that's on the street that we yeah. you know it and it's it's not this this opioid addiction and where this is entering into it touches all of us in all
0: areas I would agree I would say that that is the 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 thing that really Americans came to understand is that it's far more widespread than they ever imagined and that yes there are lots of folks who are living in with families who are kind of trying to figure out how to deal with this uh, addicted loved one's uh, uh, drug use. Um, at, at times, I would say those, those people who may start out in, you know, middle-class life uh, and so on, end up on the street because of this, because the family can't take it anymore because the, the family has gone through, you know, mortgages and not to mention trust, love, and, and, and a huge emotional roller coaster dealing with folks who are uh, with their loved one on this, and so you find that that while people very often this starts in families that, that don't on the surface seem to ha- seem to have many problems, they have seem to have everything together. Uh, this issue uh, tends to just corrode. Uh, All that and leave not just the person, the loved one, but but like the entire family, sometimes the entire extended family just, you know, brutalized by the by the whole thing. And so and, and the fact was that this that these pills which is really the, the the root of all this, the start of all this. We're, we're prescribed nationwide in, in staggering, wanton amounts, if you ask me. And what that means is that you saw this take place all across the country. It was not just a few areas, a few urban areas, not just Appalachia, not just the Rust Belt. It was a lot of suburbia, very well-to-do suburbia, in fact, in Orange County, in suburban Portland, et cetera, on and on and on. You began to see this all across the country because the people who were supplying the drugs, essentially the drug companies uh, pushing doctors to prescribe and then the doctors prescribing, were all across the country. A similar thing has now taken place with with fentanyl and methamphetamine, The, the trafficking World has put out made such quantities of this stuff down in Mexico, both meth and fentanyl, that they have essentially covered the entire country, much the same way that the drug industry covered the United States with prescription pain pills.
1: Talk about fentanyl. When when did that enter the scene, and how potent is it? Well, that? fentanyl,
0: yeah, fentanyl is a magnificent drug. People need to understand that it was invented in surgery. It has revolutionized surgery. It has made it very easy for people to do all kinds of surgeries that weren't really possible Uh, 60 years ago. uh, It came out in 1960, and uh, it's just very, very potent, and it's key to its anesthesia is that it takes you in and out of anesthesia very quickly. So you do the operation, and within minutes, the person who was uh, doped up now is coherent and walking away and saying hello to the doctor and all that kind of stuff. That is exactly, that potency and that in, quick in, quick out is exactly what makes it a perfect drug for traffickers and a torment for users. Now, users, when they're addicted to fentanyl, if they've survived their first exposures to fentanyl. They generally become addicted. No one ever ever lasts long on fentanyl. There's no such thing as a long-term street fentanyl user, but you can um, hang in there for, for like two, three years maybe. The, the thing about fentanyl is it takes you in and out, so you are always having to use all day long. That's so why I say no heroin addict ever wanted to be transitioned passive sense to, to, to fentanyl, because it means you now have to use constantly throughout the day, three, four, five, six times a day, whereas a heroin addict generally two, three times a day. And you keep that dope sickness away. Now it's like every several hours and it really is never fully away from, from, from you. And of course, it's extraordinarily deadly. What that does mean, though, is that this drug is very profitable for dealers, because now they're selling to people who are using maybe two, maybe three times the quantity that they used to use with, with, they have to shoot up at least uh, two or three times the amount that they used to do uh, with with heroin, just get a far more, a far better customer. And that is where we find ourselves today. Many, many people now have been transitioned away from whatever they were using. Could be uh, uh, heroin, could very easily also be cocaine, fentanyl laced into the cocaine, methamphetamine. Now we're seeing examples of marijuana. and And so you find people now addicted to fentanyl when really what they really thought they were buying uh, maybe initially was a cocaine or a pill that looked like a Percocet or an Adderall or a Xanax bar. Those are also now being produced by the tens of millions, I would say, down in Mexico. And all of this really gets back to, again, as I was saying, this simply staggering uh, supplies that are coming out of Mexico right now with absolutely no fear of law enforcement or government intrusion in, in, in into this trade, seems like.
1: How does a drug like fentanyl that has a medical use get to the street. How does that get discovered? How do these these drug dealers discover fentanyl and then use it?
0: Uh, there have been occasional underground chemists who produce little batches of it, and you see these little flare-ups of, of mortality through the 80s and so on. Um, but the, t- the the Sinaloa drug cartel is a fascinating story. The Sinaloa drug cartel, they tell in, in the least of those. The, the Sinaloa drug cartel discovered that because There was this underground chemist that they employed to make ephedrine. Now, ephedrine is a chemical used in one method of making methamphetamine. This guy had been and lived in most of his life in the United States, spoke better English and Spanish. He cooked fentanyl in San Diego, um, not very well. Uh, got arrested, did good number of years in prison, learned how to make it better from number of chemists. He was uh, associated or met in federal prison. When he gets out in the early 2000s, he is deported. The Sinaloa Drug Cartel contact him And one one branch, one element within the Sinaloa Drug Cartel, contacts him because they want him to make ephedrine. They're afraid that the Mexican government will cut down on ephedrine importations and they'll make it more difficult to make their methamphetamine. So they're looking for another source and they hire this guy. This guy, though, thinks he's smarter than everybody else. And he says, you know what? I'm going to make fentanyl. They don't know what this is. I know. I know better than they do. And in fact, that's exactly what he does. Unbeknownst to them, he makes a bunch of kilos of fentanyl. And then he tells them and they get very mad for a bit. But he sits them down. He says, no, you don't understand. This is the most profitable drug you'll ever, ever see. And we know this because of, uh, he was extensively uh, interviewed by the DEA agents. I interviewed the DEA agents. And this was their their uh, uh, recollection of the conversation with the guy. And he told them, these these traffickers, this this stuff that I make is like a synthetic heroin. So you don't have to drink, grow poppies anymore. He was making it in a lab. That meant something to him right there. But he also said, plus you can cut this 50 times, meaning one kilo can be cut into 50 kilos and still be sellable on the street. Nobody believes that. And they did some testing and they test test marketed it. Literally that's what the wiretaps showed that they, they were like testing it in Chicago. They sent it up to Chicago and then Detroit. And pretty soon they're getting back. Yes, it's working. It's amazing. People love it and all that kind of stuff that then the lights go on in the Sinaloa drug hotel that, that this is, um, a synthetic heroin, no more poppies, and it's amazingly potent. You don't have to, you can you can cut it 50 times. And so that is where they first understand the power of fentanyl as a synthetic, they don't have to grow anything anymore. The problem is that they then lose that chemist. He gets arrested within about nine months. That lab that he sets up is the first time we see real mass die off due to fentanyl. There's a period of maybe like a year or so, not quite, in which thousands of people die in th- c- Chicago, Detroit, St. Louis, because nobody really understands how potent this stuff is. This really has not been sold widespread. They kind of don't have a source for how to make it for a while in the Sondola drug cartel. The Chinese step in. The, cha- the Chinese chemical companies begin selling it online, and many of the people who buy it from them are in the, the states where the opioid epidemic has hit first, Ohio. Kentucky, West Virginia, they're very bad at mixing it because fentanyl, it's it's like a lottery ticket, but you got to know how to mix it with other powders because it's too potent. There's a few grains of it will get you high. A couple more will kill you. But either way, you're not going to be able to sell a few grains of this stuff on the streets. They have to mix it with something else. In time, though, the 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 Chinese government cracks down on the production of fentanyl, reduces the number of companies can legally make it. And the Mexican uh, trafficking world, meanwhile, has been learning how to make it. And so by 2017, you're beginning to see the Mexican trafficking world master the production of fentanyl. And then China becomes a source, not of fentanyl, but of ingredients with which the trafficking world can, in Mexico can make sentinel. And then you begin to see them take advantage of the vast ability to smuggle drugs through the 2000 miles of border through um, uh, with, with trucks with, because of free trade, because we don't have nearly the ability at the border to, to check more than a few percentage points of, of the numbers of trucks and cars that are coming across. And that's when you begin to see, fentanyl go from the Midwest to the East and the West. And that's when you begin to see it hit, hit the Western coast, California, Oregon, et cetera, about 2018, 19, right in there. And by the time COVID comes around, basically they have covered the entire country with fentanyl as, as well as methamphetamine that's another story though
1: just reading you know yeah. the la times the op-ed that you wrote that some yes. users could smoke up to 50 to 100 pills a day
0: right and that may be the i mean literally that's what's going on on the border now the the pills are coming in because a function of this supply, one of the functions is that they're p- producing just staggering quantities of these lookalike counterfeit pills that look like Percocets or Xanax or Adderall or Oxycodone generics, the press blues, as they're known. Uh, you, you, the first bust of those pills was in uh, 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 17, 2017, uh, 12,000 pills. Like, now they're capturing uh, hundreds of thousands of pills every day in one border crossing. You know, it's just you're talking about tens of millions of these pills, I think, uh, coming across. And in certain areas, they're, they're pretty cheap all across the country, but they're dirt cheap down on the border area. And so in the southern Arizona, I have a number of sources telling me that they have people in, in, in drug treatment and so on who have just, you know, they're smoking the pills. You know, you do inject them. They're so potent. They're, they're smoking about 50 to 100. That must that may be, in fact, as a group, the highest tolerance to an opioid that a human being has ever achieved i I just can't imagine going any higher what it means is though if you're in that situation you are using all day long you don't get a you're you're kind of finding the pill and smoking it every hour every two hours at the most you know that kind of thing because it's just rat race to keep the drug sickness away and you've got to constantly speed that dragon
1: thinking about the drug user who knows how to administer, how to smoke, how to the dosage. But then we hear about the the horrific stories of the high school student or the college student that just takes a hit, takes one, and it kills them. Sure. Trying to connect that that
0: dot is just. Well, there's really kind of two markets in a sense, particularly for the pills. The pills are, for a long time, they were made to look exactly like what they were trying to imitate, particularly the oxycodone generic press blues, little blue pills with an M for Malin crop. The company used to make those. They were they were they went to great lengths to make them look that way. Now I don't think they care anymore because all they, they have, they know their market is made up of people who are who are frankly simply addicted to fentanyl and they don't care what form of fentanyl comes. They just need it every day to keep the dope sickness away. But there is another Market, and that's the street market I'm just described, or the, 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 the more more seriously addicted. Then there's this other market of kids who are finding that, that, that now the dealers with so many of these pills available to them have set up shop on Snapchat, or on Instagram, or TikTok, or some of these other Uh, social media apps and these are kids who don't know a thing about what they're doing they don't know a thing about what's involved in these pills they don't know a thing that they they think it's a xanax bar they're anxious they you know particularly on covid they were at home they're on the only way they interact with the world is with their smartphone and the social media apps they're seeing the stuff advertised they buy that stuff and all it has is fentanyl there's no chance they have the tolerance to to withstand even one of those pills and a lot of times this is what was happening Uh, I was at a protest in front of Snapchat headquarters in June of 2001, 60, 80 parents, all with placards, posters saying Snapchat is complicit in the murder of my son, daughter, all of which, all of whom died during the COVID year plus, and and all of whom were buying these drugs sold anonymously on Snapchat by dealers who now have so many of these pills. It's really the supply has solved the dealer's great conundrum through history. It's always been where do I get dope get dope to be able to sell? Now it's you you don't have to worry about that. You can find it any, anywhere. Now the big question is where do I sell it? Well, during COVID particularly Social media apps became in the new street corner, and that, and I think that still continued on.
1: Talking about our homeless, our tent camps. Reading in one of the articles that the the narrative for those situations is that housing prices are too high and they can't afford it, so they have to live in these tents. They have to live in the street. We need to really kind of pull back a lot of layers in that narrative because that isn't always accurate. Not everybody number one that lives on the street in a tent wants to live in a home there's the drugs there's a the depression there's all kinds of things that fall into that yes. narrative that we really right. for some reason we don't want to talk about it or the narrative does not want to go that direction yeah.
0: yes i found this very strongly when i was doing my book and the point is this that this, this all grows from the idea that in mexico in the last 10 years they cha- had to change the way they made met due to some regulations due to some government actions they had to change so they find a new way it involves a whole lot more chemicals, but it allows them to make, because they can get all these chemicals from, uh, from the uh, world chemical markets through those ports I was talking about, it allows them to make quantities of methamphetamine that are, again, simply staggering and very much like the fentanyl story, just in simply their ability to make this stuff. That meth ha- begins to march in enormous quantities across the country, about 2000, let's say 12, 13, right in there hits the Midwest where where there's never been any Mexican mess, just like small shake and baker, small time cooks in a motel somewhere uh, and gets rid of all of them. It outcompetes all of them by 2017, 18, right in there. 2019, it's all the way up in New England. It's covered New England and no longer do you have uh, another area that never had any mouth to speak with you, yeah, the nationwide coverage of this meth due to this new way of making meth that is, allows them to make quantities that we've just never conceived of before. But along the way, the other story that, the, that I've broken, the least of us, talks about how with this meth, what is also accompanies it is very rapid onset symptoms of mental illness, primarily schizophrenia very intense, very scary paranoia, complete delusions, hallucinations, very profound hallucinations, um, inability to order one's life. Very quickly, things go way out of control. You're up three in the morning, screaming at demons. Very quickly, people lose their homes or their housing, whatever form that takes, and they're out on on the street. At the same time, homelessness is a is a very complicated problem because there's so many reasons why people end up homeless. Drug addiction and certainly this methamphetamine is certainly one of the the more important ones, but there's many domestic violence, aging out of foster care, leaving prison without family. But whatever the reason, by the time this meth is so prevalent on the streets, by the time people are leaving, becoming homeless during that period, during the last several years, it depends on where you are. Um, the, the meth the meth's so prevalent that by the time you're homeless, you are you, it, many people turn to using it. You can stay up all night. You you can you can kind of deal with the grim reality of where you are and kind of divorce yourself from the grim reality of where you are. And what ends up happening is, that regardless of why you initially became homeless, this meth will keep you homeless. It will ignore you to the worst of it. It will keep you, um, uh, uh, it kind of uh, cushion you from the, the, the grimace of the of possibilities, and it keeps you up, able, better able to protect yourself, better able to better avoid rape, and all, all the rest. And so this is what you're seeing all across the country. I believe it's a national story. It defies the idea that homelessness is solely due to afford- lack of affordable housing, because this is happening in rural parts of America, in Rust Belt, parts of America, I wrote about three chapters in, the, in a town in West Virginia, where this is definitely what was happening. They had no homeless at all until this map arrived, and then pretty soon hundreds of people are, are homeless. Great devastation to their, to their town, um, and there's simply no problem with affordable housing in that, that town. And so it seems to me like this contra- it was contrary, though, to this reigning narrative that all homelessness is due to the lack of affordable housing and therefore, the sole way of dealing with it is through building affordable housing. I think this myth is showing that, that a big part of this is uh, of this pro- homeless problem that we're seeing across the country is due to drug addiction and mental illness. Very, very clearly, if you spend any time on the street at all, this is very clear. Um, a lot of times, though, activists uh, don't want to hear this and they have a a certain political power, particularly in certain areas. I think in Oregon, their power is pretty profound, certainly in L.A., San Francisco, the same thing. And you don't get a lot of room for other uh, points of view that may, I think, reflect reality far more acutely.
1: Well, I don't think they realize how much harm they're actually causing without really getting in the trenches and, and doing work similar to what you're doing to find out exactly individually why some of these individuals are homeless and what's going on there? It does
0: feel to me like narrative ideology is trumping reality and simple, you know, reporting. Basically, go to—I mean—I found it fascinating that I broke this story in the least of this that meth was a was creating a mental illness and therefore homelessness and tent encampments too. By the way, tent encampments are a perfect place if you're in if you're if you are uh, on meth. The last place you want to be is a, is a is a homeless shelter off the street you want because it's crazy all these people they're very scary to you now because everybody's you're paranoid about everything and tent is a perfect place you're in this little pod away from the world plus you're around other people who have the dope it's a highly addictive substance and so you have best of of both worlds and so you i i I think that this has kind of led folks to you know be very very intractably homeless frequently i would say however that it, it struck me as I was writing The Least of Us, in which I was writing the story, and, and I was afraid I would be scooped. And I was looking around, nobody was writing about this. No one was talking about this. Newspaper reporters in about a dozen cities I could name right now could have written the story that I wrote in The Least of Us about the very, very clear and very severe symptoms of mental illness and, and schizophrenia that this meth is creating, but two or three, four or five years ago, very easily, and nobody did. And I think it's because frequently newspaper reporters are kind of captured. A lot of them very young. There's a lot of turmoil in the newspaper industry, a lot of cutbacks. And they kind of take their narratives from people who are easy to take their narratives from. And, and also, I would say, are frequently are young like them. And, and, you know, maybe they go to the same parties. I don't know. There's a, there's a kind of a, a kind of a culture and environment in which they all want to operate. And, um, and, and so you're getting this lack of willingness to even, propose this idea or even address this idea when if you spend any time on the street, you could see how important drug addiction and mental illness are to solving a problem. Again, regardless of why someone is initially homeless, and there are many, 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 many reasons, but these drugs, particularly methamphetamine, seem to just keep people mired, chained to the street. You want to talk about mass incarceration? (laughs) Mass incarceration is going on in every tent encampment in America, it seems to me. Not everybody is, is a drug addict in a, in a tent. Not everybody is mentally ill. But so many people seem to be afflicted by one or both of those and, t- and just tied, chained to the, to the tent, to the point where the temperatures will drop. They'll be faced with you know frostbite, losing digits, freezing to death. And this is happening uh, over the last several years, and still people won't leave the tent. Still people will refuse treatment. Still people will refuse housing. It's an amazing idea.
1: What's being done today? is Are we seeing in... Movement, attention, DEA support. What's what's happening at our oh, local level? I would say
0: the DEA has been, yeah, the DEA has been on this for a bit. I think that um, there has been lately. I would say it seems like the agency has not put as much effort into dealing with the chemicals in Mexico. But I would say too that you know, given the, the tensions and the, the conflicts between the two governments, that maybe that's kind of a natural outgrowth of just the problems that we face. In trying to collaborate the history that we have together, a very conflicted history. I lived in Mexico for 10 years, was a writer down there for a long, long time, wrote two books about the country. I don't uh, minimize the, the deep historical antagonisms that have grown up, and that's quite another conversation. But but nevertheless, uh, um, uh, it, it's, it's a big part of what's what's going on at the border. Um, I do believe, though, that it's in, uh, clearly, clearly in everybody's interest that there be this very deep collaboration between these two countries. Um, I believe Mexico needs to be pushed to deal with the, the corruption that is just crippling uh, major parts of the of, of the country. And we need to get wise about assault weapons and what exactly, how they are connected to the toxic prevalence of these uh, drugs on, on, our, on our streets, killing us uh, in record numbers. Well,
1: and I've always wondered, too, why Mexico hasn't been held accountable. Um, I understand why people are wanting to leave. I mean, the, the people that really want to leave, not, not the, uh, the mules and, and the drugs that are coming over, but at the same time, Mexico, why don't you care more about your people?
0: Um, yes. And that would be a very long conversa- <laughs> conversation about Mexico, because there's certainly a, a vast swaths of the country that are just outraged by what's going on here and, and with the, 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 the power and the, the crippling effect that they have on the economy, et cetera, of trafficking. Uh, the traffickers that that have grown up and believe themselves to be kind of brazen and uh, and untouchable. Sure, and I, I do believe that part of the problem is that that American presidents, this one and the last one, have seen that their issue is more connected to uh, having Mexico prevent illegal immigrants from coming up from Central America and other parts of Latin America, because the illegal immigration from from Mexico is not what it once was but that immigration from other parts of the country, countries, other places in, the, in, in Latin America certainly has increased. So Mexico seems to be like this linchpin in our immigration policy, and to avoid the, the, the problems associated with that, we tend to kind of look the other way when it comes to drug issues in Mexico. And, you know, Donald Trump allowed a, 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 a general who had been arrested, at the DEA had, had, it sounds like, from my interviews, remarkable evidence of his uh, collaboration with drug traffickers in the state of Nayarit, which is on the Pacific coast, just south of Sinaloa. Um, And yet Donald Trump sent him him back because the president of Mexico asked him to, because he's kind of beholden to the army. And Donald Trump is beholden to that president because he wanted him to, uh, because he asked the the president to to stanch the flow of, uh, of immigrants coming up from Latin America. I mean, it's like this complicated thing. And yet here's this general who, for whom, on my understanding, again from interviews I've done, uh, just st- stunning amounts of information about uh, taped cell phone calls of him talking to the local hotel chieftain and that kind of thing in in the state of Nary. And still, we sent him back. He should be in prison today if the evidence was as I was told it was. Um, and, and so you see, you see, kind of immigration as a complicating factor and. And of course, free trade is complicating. In fact, we can't track many of the trucks that come across because if we did, we would slow down the the the, the processing to such a degree that the factories in the United States would not be able to get their supplies, their the the, the things that they use to make other goods, or they wouldn't. You know, the, the avocados and the tomatoes would rot, all that kind of stuff. And so, all of this is kind of made very. It's a complicated thing, and I don't want to make it. You know. Um, Uh, make it seem as if it's an easy thing to solve. It is not. It is extraordinarily difficult, but it does require solutions come once you put your mind to it. And so far there has been a a real lack of interest in the Mexican government today um, in doing that. It's been very little done about the guns. It seems to me coming from the United States over the last 30, 40 years. So all of that kind of combines to create a, a difficult Panorama.
1: Sam, who do you want reading this book, The Least of Us? Who is it for?
0: (sighs) Yeah, that's a good question. I always think I'm writing for the, the families of a loved one who's addicted to one of these drugs. That's the way I did with Dreamland, my first book on this topic. I, it, it seems to me that the be- that's the best target audience, not because that's the only target audience, but that's the one where if you write for them, you make it clear for them, everybody else will understand what you're talking about. It's got to be as clear as you can make it for the people who really aren't deeply involved, for whom this is just this, you know, blow out of the blue. And um, you need for them to understand, and that is really most of the American public. Now, there's certain people, of course, who read the book, public health folks, law enforcement, judges, what have you, who may know great chunks of this story already. But to me, what I'm trying to do is, is reach out to Americans who've had this issue in their lives in some way and say, this is how this happened, how these, the drugs got so cheap and so prevalent. This is how your boy ended up schizophrenic Uh, in a tent um, in Sacramento or in Portland or in uh, rural Indiana somewhere. You know what I mean? So that is kind of, to me, has always been the best idea. You write for the person that you can easily visualize and the person for whom once that person understands it, pretty much everybody's going to understand it too.
1: I also see this book as as in my mind, I just keep thinking of parents and for their middle schoolers, high schoolers heading into college so they can educate themselves. We hear about the Skittles on the street and things like that. And My kids are adult children, yeah. so I don't have that necessarily that concern. You know, you don't look at drugs anymore. You can't say it's recreational use. I mean, it's life or death.
0: We, we have reached the end of the era of recreational drug use in America. Sentinel put an end to it a couple of years a few years ago, <laughs> if you ask me. Now, nothing, you, can, you can't trust anything on the street or at a party to not include Sentinel. I mean, no line of cocaine in america is trustworthy in that way i think anymore and so yes all of this is is part of the a part of the story i want i want parents to understand as i tell my kids wherever you, and my kid uh, my daughter when I, when she goes off to a party i say where well, i don't care what happens at this party you cannot take a drug from anybody no matter how well, you know that person, no matter how much you may trust that person who cannot take drugs from that, because that's the nature of the story today. And the book was really written, I think, for families like that. So families could understand what is happening out there and why and where it, where it's rooted and maybe be better able to defend themselves. Then.
1: Well, again, Sam, I appreciate this time and this work. Thank you.
0: Very nice to be with you, Don. Thanks so much for the thoughtful questions. Very appreciate it.
1: Hey, thanks for listening to the Don Newton podcast. And a special thank you to my guest, Sam Canonis joining us today to discuss his book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. For more information about Sam and his work, samkanonas.com, and be sure and check out my website, donnewton.com. The Don Newton Podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Don Newton.